Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Episode 4, The Holy Clay. Easter 2003. Two years have passed since Neville Preshow lay all night at Ballers Fort on the eastern cliffs of Tory Island, praying for forgiveness for the islanders that he believed had wronged him. Nearly ten years have passed since his house vanished. In a rare moment of calm in their troubled lives, the family are on holiday in Donegal. The weather is so beautiful, they decide to take a day trip to Tory Island. It seems as though Neville just can't stay away from the place that haunts his every waking moment. But this trip will be different. I was up at the bow, just below the wheelhouse, and there was a person standing next to me with a beard. And I thought he looked an interesting person. The man standing next to Neville was the journalist, Anton McCabe. I was standing in the prow. It was a very fine day, looking out over Tory Sound to Tory. And there was a tall, vigorous, bearded man, and we got talking that's someday, isn't it? Aye, absolutely gorgeous. Perfect weather for a visit to Tory. Is it your first time on the island? Oh, no. I have a long history with Tory. I've been coming backwards and forwards for years. Me too. I love it here. And if you have a wee bit of Irish, it really helps. I've got to know the islanders quite well. They've made me feel so welcome. It's a bit of a home from home now. <laughs> I wish I could say the same. Sorry to hear that. Everybody's welcome on Tory till they turn against you, then nobody will give you the time of day. Hold on. You're not. Neville. Neville Preshow. The poor Egypt with the house that disappeared. You've heard about me then? Bits and pieces over the years. Like I said, having the Irish means the islanders sometimes confide in me. I hear things outsiders might never hear. What sort of things? Yeah, I wouldn't want to say. It's probably just gossip. You know how quickly rumours spread out here. Okay, I get it. You don't want to tell me what you know. It's probably not even news to you. I just heard that somebody was paid to burn your house down. That's all I'm saying. I've said too much already. I'm a journalist. I have to protect my sources. Rubbish. I can see you're really upset. and have every sympathy. I'd love to hear your side of the story. Maybe I can help. To be honest, I'm not sure I have anything to say to you. Unfortunately, I let Neville walk away without taking his phone number and even met him a couple of times on the island that day. Neville had come so close to finding answers before and it always seemed to slip through his fingers. But not this time. What happened was we were staying in Bunbeg and we were sitting outside... And I don't know how Fiona knew this, but she says, there's that man you were talking to walking along the quay. And I dashed up to him. Hold on. Wait. Yes. I just wanted to apologise for storming off earlier on the ferry. I'm sorry. It was rude. I'm just that desperate for answers. Nobody will talk to me. I understand you must be really frustrated, Mr. Cresham. I'm actually glad to run into you again. I was thinking about our conversation, and I might know somebody who could help. 
Really? That would be amazing. Just amazing. I'm sorry. I don't even think I introduced myself this morning. The name's Anton McCabe. No promises now, Mr. Pressure, but I'll see what I can do to help you out. A few days after I rang him, had a longer chat, and then I put him on to Michael Gillespie. My name's Michael Gillespie. I'm a solicitor based in Donegal. So far, Neville hadn't had much luck with solicitors. He approached a few, but none would take on his case. Michael seemed different. There was a, a, a good rapport between us. He seemed very sympathetic, which the other solicitors weren't. You know, I, I, I just got on well with him. Obviously, all solicitors should have a passion for justice. I know in my case, since my childhood, I've developed a sense of justice. And I like to do what's right. And I'm always happy to act for somebody who's not been well treated, who's marginalised, who's, um, as in Neville Pressure's case, who's been the victim of quite a serious injustice. Thank you for making time for me, Mr Gillespie. I really appreciate you taking an interest in my case. I'll do my best, Mr Pressure. I can't promise you it's going to be easy. We've a few things working against us, but I'll do my best. Uh, notice your wife's not here with you today. Is she in agreement about moving forwards with the case? Yes. Uh, no. Look, she has her concerns. She's worried about the toll this is taking on the family. We've not had it easy these last few years. Are you sure about moving ahead with this? It can be a really difficult experience having your life publicly dissected by a bunch of strangers. I understand it's not going to be easy. It's been far from plain sailing so far. What exactly are we facing now? Well, on the positive side, it'll be tried as a civil rather than a criminal case. With a civil case, a lesser standard of proof is required. So long as the judge is satisfied that the balance of probability is there, he can find in our favour. That's good. Yes, absolutely. The problem is with a civil case, there's a strict time limit in which to bring forward a claim. Here in Ireland, it's three years for a personal injury claim and six for claiming personal damages where a legal wrong, what we call a tort, has been committed. And we're well outside that time limit already. Exactly, Mr Preshaw. Now, we could claim you've been under a disability for a substantial period of this time due to your mental illness. In a period of incapacity, the clock stops running, if you know what I mean. The time limit is extended, so to speak. I understand. That's true enough. Nobody would listen to me. So we'd be arguing that I was actually incapable of instructing a solicitor during this time because I was too ill. Exactly so. But it wouldn't be a pleasant process for you. If we get your case to court, your mental health issues will be up for open discussion and scrutiny. Nothing will be off limits. It could be very distressing for you and your family. I don't care. I have to see this through. Whatever it takes. I'll tell them whatever they need to know. I'm not ashamed of what's happened to me. Well, if you're sure, Mr Presho, I'll begin proceedings. In September 2003, Michael Gillespie sent a letter to Patrick Doohan's solicitor seeking 250000 in damages. 
My client has provided me with the information to the effect that his dwelling house was destroyed and removed entirely from the ground by you and or persons working on your behalf. And my client holds you liable for the very substantial loss, injury and damage which he has suffered as a result of this matter. Doohan's solicitor responded, as expected, by denying all the allegations. My client has been very much offended by the allegations contained in your letter and he would like to take the opportunity to impress upon your client that he should be careful in future as to what he alleges against my client. The allegations are totally untrue and unfounded. Alongside the legal challenge, Michael helped Neville to approach the Gardaí with a view to reviewing their original investigation into the fire. This led to a new investigation. A detective visited the island in the autumn, but once again met a wall of silence. As the judge would later say, the absence of statements from the many inhabitants regarding what should have been obvious to all is significant. This was to be the second hurdle for Neville and Michael. Proof. Hi. Can I tell you something which may be not true. There's holy clay on the island, I'm sure you're aware of that. The holy clay is linked to the story of St. Columkill, said to have built a monastery on Tory in the 6th century. And apparently this man was blaming a dolphin for taking fish from his nets and he got some of the holy clay and he went down to the pier and threw it in the water and cursed the dolphin. And it was found washed up along the beach towards the east end, and it was dead. Now, I don't know if this is a myth or not. Uh, that's just, you know, what I heard. A lot of the half-deckers would have a little bag of the clay attached to the front of their boat uh, as a sort of a, like a charm, you know, you'll foresee for safe passage. Tradition is strong on Tory. Beliefs matter and loyalty matters. Even if islanders were unhappy about what had happened to Neville and his house, they felt unable to speak out. Though some did confide privately to Anton. There was a degree of a degree of shame and annoyance that that had been done to a visitor to their island, to an outsider. Unfortunately, at that stage, people still weren't speaking out. And we should think that there were reasons for that. The island was still relatively remote. In ways, it was an enclosed community. Particularly at that time, everybody was related to one another. People depended on one another. And in a small, narrow community, even though there were tensions, you would have to think long and hard before you would have a lasting falling out with anybody else on the island. This became even more apparent when solicitor Michael Gillespie was making preparations to go to court. When the house was destroyed in an area where there was lots of houses round about, nobody had seen the cause of the fire. Nobody had seen who demolished the house. Nobody was willing to say anything. So I sent a witness summons. So we cited maybe six or eight 
Islanders to attend the High Court as witnesses, although they had refused to give statements. And nobody from the island came to give evidence. We could have had the guards go and bring these witnesses to the court in a, in a police car, but there's no point in bringing a witness to court against their will because you're not going to get the evidence that you require. The back and forth between the legal teams continued for years, accusations and denials, until Neville's legal team issued official summons in 2006. Patrick initially refused to accept them, until the High Court ruled they should be posted directly through his letterbox. Finally, after repeated delays, the stage was set. The hearing was scheduled to begin in the High Court on the 2nd of March 2009. But the long, slow process of bringing his case to court had taken a heavy toll on Neville. He was admitted to a psychiatric hospital twice and eventually all of the stress and strain was to prove too much for Fiona. Their marriage came to an end and Neville moved back in with his elderly parents. Hello, Presho household. Neville speaking. It's me, Neville. How are you? Och, Fiona, it's lovely to hear your voice. I'm not too bad. How are you? How are the kids? The kids are doing well, Neville. They ask about you all the time. They want to know how their daddy is. <laughs> Tell them their daddy's grand. Tell them Granny and Grand Presho are looking after him, helping him get back on his feet. He's not had the easiest run of it. I heard. I'm sorry. Are you feeling better now? Oh, yes. An awful lot better. And I've got my court case coming up soon. I know. That's why I'm phoning. Are you going to come along to the court? No, Neville. You know I can't. Oh, this is so hard. Look, it hasn't been the best between us lately, but I just wanted you to know that I really honestly wish you well. And I hope court is a good thing. I hope you get all the answers you've been looking for. I really think we will this time. The solicitor I've been working with, Michael Gillespie, feels like we have a really strong case. I don't want to hear the ins and outs of it. To be honest, I never want to hear tell of Tory Island again. I have to go. I need to get the wee ones to bed. Don't go, love. Look after yourself, Neville. Promise me, you'll look after yourself. The 2nd of March, 2009... Neville's case begins at the High Court, sitting in Letterkenny, County Donegal. The proceedings are to be heard in Irish at the request of Patrick Doohan. Anton McCabe is one of only a handful of journalists in attendance on the first day of the hearing. I remember it started a while after 11, and I will always mind, I'll always mind Patrick walking in, Patrick Doohan. If you were to require a stereotype of the Donegal man-made good, that was Patrick walking into the court. Tall, confident, in the full bloom of health and prosperity. Neville, in the half dozen years since I had first met him, he had shrunk, become bald. He looked unwell. You could tell that this was a man who had 
come through a very awful time. This was an unusual case for many reasons. Not just because it centred on a house that had apparently vanished, it was unusual, though not unheard of, for a case to be heard in Irish, which meant that both teams had to appoint an Irish-speaking barrister. But it was very unusual for the High Court, which normally sits in Dublin, to come to a town in County Donegal. It was presided over by Justice Roderick Murphy. As it was a civil case, there was to be no jury. The judgment would be his alone. Welcome to the High Court in Letterkenny. Today we are hearing the case between the plaintiff, Neville Presho, and the defendants, Patrick Doohan and Austin Hurry Colac, Toronto. As no official transcript of court proceedings was taken at the time, we've based the exchanges you'll hear on notes taken by court reporters who were there and on what was reported at the time, though we'll hear it in English. The morning of the first day was taken up by the opening remarks from both teams. Then, after lunch, it was Neville's turn to take the stand. I suppose it was, you know, like was a bit of trepidation, you know, because I'd never been into court before and it was all new to me and I felt a bit out of the picture because I couldn't follow it in Irish, the comings and goings, you know. Neville just hit a note of drama. He talked almost in a whisper. He broke down in tears a number of times. He just absolutely held the attention of that court. Every ear was cocked to every word. I always liked to stand in the prow of the ferry. When we were about half a mile from shore, I got an awful shock. I couldn't see my house. It wasn't there anymore. Are you okay, Mr. Pressure? Yes. Sorry, Your Honour. It's just so hard to talk about. The moment I realised my house had gone, a switch flicked inside my brain. I became a different person. I started drinking a lot. It affected me in all sorts of ways. My wife became afraid of me. I spent two months in Ireland. Everywhere I went, I got the door closed in my face. I began to think, maybe it was my fault. Maybe I caused this. Do you want to take a minute, Neville? Sorry. I'm so sorry about this. As a family, we went through a series of traumatic events. I was barely able to cope with life. I felt like I'd tried to do my best for the island and not been thanked for it. I was like a zombie. I wasn't functioning at all. I went manic when I discovered the house was gone. I'd worked for three or four days without food or sleep. I could keep going as long as I was drinking. Neville gave a vivid account of his attempts to get answers from the islanders, from the guardie, from the council, how he had been sectioned in New Zealand and their children taken into care. Under cross-examination, he talked again about the night he spent on the rock at Dunballer, 
and the agreement to swap land he had made with Patrick the next day. Mr. Presho, are you claiming that despite your attempts to make inquiries on the island, no one would tell you anything about what had happened to your house? Patrick Doohan was the only one who talked to me. When I approached him, he said, I'd want to find out who'd burnt my house. Mr. Presho, in 2001, did you agree to give your site on Tory to Mr. Patrick Doohan in exchange for another site on the island? Yes. Let me explain. When I was at my most manic, I spent a night up on top of the Tor Moor, naked, in the month of October. I was pretty far gone, but while I was up there, I had this idea about the swap. I wanted to build a visitor centre. It was a completely manic idea, totally impractical. I wasn't in a good place at the time. I really just wanted to build bridges with him. I ended up in a mental institution for ten weeks when I got back from that trip to Tory. Afterwards, I wrote to Patrick Doohan, alleging he'd demolished my house and paid two men to burn it down. And did Doohan reply? He never fulfilled his side of the agreement. I'd forgiven him for what he'd done. I just didn't have the mental wherewithal for legal action. I hadn't the financial wherewithal either. Your Honour, you have to understand that when I discovered my house was gone, something just went berserk in my brain. I wasn't the same after the house disappeared. At the close of the first day, Justice Murphy asked both parties to reflect on what had been said that day. <clears throat> the evidence given today has been quite dramatic. Overnight, I would ask the parties involved to consider the enforceability of the agreement of 4th of August 2001. It is clear it was an assignment of land. It would be worth deliberating on the implementation of this agreement. Day two. Neville's team had expected an approach and possibly a settlement overnight. But none came. By now, interest in the case had intensified greatly. Anton had filed his report to an Irish newspaper with a photo of Neville and the headline... Where's my home gone to? And it was the talk of the town. There were people coming and going from the public gallery, like, at a rate of knots. Journalist Enya Nivreslon. It was nearly as though people were were saying, hey, there'll be good evidence given after lunch. Go down for a look, if nothing else. A lot of the time it felt people were just in for a bit of a nosy and a bit of a look to see what's your man going to say or what's going to happen here. The press table was packed and I had trouble getting into it. And then Patrick was back in the court. He looked, I think the best description was he was a man that had drawn an unnecessary storm on himself. And a storm he would never now be able to calm. It was like as if the energy had been drained out of him. But Neville had almost, he had come to life overnight. You could still tell that he was a man who had more than had his troubles. But he had energy, he had, he had enthusiasm. You almost felt that the energy which had drained from Patrick had flowed into Neville. And then that morning, the storm on Patrick blew harder with the evidence of John McGinty. 
Well, it, it's a kind of precarious enough position for me because, like, the Islanders, like, were fairly good to me, in all fairness. I had a good good time out there, you know, and I knew it was going to cause serious friction between myself and uh, and if I was ever if I was ever heading out to the island again, so I had some reservations about it, but then I put them aside and I thought, well, there's a bit of injustice happened here, and I better try and help out Neville. I don't like seeing injustice done, and I knew there was an injustice, serious injustice done, and I mean this like this thing that somebody can come come in and bulldoze their way through life, you know, like they have to be held accountable now and again, you know. Me and the fellas who were working on the hotel stayed in that house, the actual house that burnt down. And it wasn't a palace or anything, but it was a good wee house, very sound, in no danger of falling down. Doohan offered me a thousand pounds if I'd knock it down. I said I'd consider it, but I'd need proof he owned the house before I touched it, and none came. So that was the end of that. I mean, to be very honest, if I'd owned that hotel, I'd have wanted the house removed too. Do you recall something happening to the house, Mr McGinty? My workmen rang me up to say a sheet of asbestos had come off the roof. I thought this was a bit strange, but I instructed them to get the sheet back and get the roof sorted as best they could. Patrick Doohan said he'd help with the roof, but then the front wheel of his digger came up against the only spare sheet of asbestos on the island and broke it. Water started coming in. The house was no longer habitable. I told my workmen, if water's coming in, you need to take the fuses out of the house to avoid a fire. Now, this was just a couple of days prior to the burning of the house. When I returned to the island, I went for a look. The only part of the house not burnt was the porch where the fuses had been. I rang the guardian, Bonbeg. I reported that the house had been burnt on Tory. Under cross-examination, McGinty denied he had stored oils in the house that could have been responsible for the fire or that he was motivated by falling out with Patrick over money. When a house is burnt down and your stuff is destroyed, it's normal practice to report it. I'd have expected some interest from the Gardaí. I was anticipating a forensic team. About £5,000 worth of my equipment was lost in the fire. All my own clothes... Bed clues, that, that, that sort of thing. Your Honour, this witness appears to have a limited memory. There was actually a barrel of hydraulic oil in a store attached to the house. Engine oil, possibly one or two barrels of diesel. Uh, there was no internal door connecting the house to that store. The fire was definitely malicious. Are you making these allegations for the purpose of a claim, Mr McGinty? I'm not trying to claim off anyone. This is mudslinging. Mr McGinty is fully entitled to make a claim if he so wishes. I'm happy to concede to my learned friend. Look, I have no concrete evidence as to how exactly that fire started. It's like Mr. Presho said to me once, there must be a new Bermuda Triangle on Tory Island if houses can just disappear like that. Next time... Mr. Doohan, did you at one stage advise Mr. Presho to find out who had burnt down his house? Yes, I did tell Neville that. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked.
Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.